I'm Abhijat Saraswath, and this is Fringe Legal, a collection of conversations with innovators on how to put ideas into practice. Each episode is a discussion with a changemaker who shares their ideas, insights, and lessons from their journey. I'm excited to present my conversation with Keith Mazierick. This is one of those episodes where while interviewing Keith, I was able to just ask him the questions, sit back and learn. If you want to skip directly to the conversation, then maybe go forward two minutes or so. Otherwise, stick around for a quick summary, a bit more about our guest. Keith Mazierick has been building and leading legal pricing, legal project management, and profitability functions since 2009. He is currently the Director of Pricing and Legal Project Management at Catton Machin Rosenman LLP, where he is responsible for building and scaling the firm's formal pricing and legal project management functions. Keith is a board member and officer of Legal Value Network, a legal operations, pricing and project management, as well as process management in the supergroup, which is focused on evolving the legal service delivery model. He frequently speaks at industry events and publishes articles on related topics. So what do we cover in this episode? The overall theme for our conversation is all around pricing and really around value delivery. But before we get into the meat of the matter and the tactics, we start with a overview, a history, so to speak, with regards to the economics of the legal market. We walk through the shift from the power of buyers to power of suppliers. You may recognize those terms from Porter's Five Forces, a key call out from the episode is that law firms and the legal industry in general is impacted by the same economic principles as everyone else. It's a dynamic system that looks to be in equilibrium. While shifts happen, over time, the corrections are made to have things come back to the neutral position. Towards the second half of the conversation, we talk about some topics that really drew me in. One of them being around price discrimination, the idea that not everything is worth the same. So we really need to turn the conversation to be about value and options available. With regards to the latter, you have to think, is there a way that the supplier or buyer can bundle or unbundle or even leverage technology, all of which will have an impact on the pricing of the work? And lastly, we explore the impact of technology, specifically in how it can help with being able to better price matters, deliver higher value for a similar cost, as well as impact retention. And all of those three things certainly can happen in tandem. The last one, retention is key, especially in a market where there is a scarcity of the people that can do the work. And two quick things before we do get to a conversation. First, there are a few resources we mentioned during the episode, all of which are listed in the show notes. Second, the next issue of the Fringe Legal newsletter will be focused on pricing and will supplement this conversation quite nicely. So if you haven't already, you can find them both and sign up at fringelegal.com. And before we get started, a special thanks to Paul Stroker of LexFusion for making the introduction to Keith. And now, without further ado, here is my conversation with Keith Mazurik. Welcome, Keith. Uh, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation. 
So there's a lot of discussion, as there has been for years, around pricing and the cost of legal services. It's become a lot more visible recently, especially with the current economic climate and for everyone's reference for recording this in May 2022. Talk to me about pricing and how you approach that, especially what is the impact of the current market factors on how law firms price and how in-house teams or corporate teams should be looking at the cost of legal services. At this point in history, we've come to a state of, of circumstances where it's a bit of an inflection point from what we've had for the last, I would say, at least a decade. If I call on my old school frameworks, Porter's Five Forces, starting from the, the Great Recession, the financial crisis of 2008, that started a decade plus of what we would you know, refer to as buyer power. There was a huge amount of, obviously, budgetary sensitivities and budgetary scrutiny on what every outflow was from big corporate entities across the globe. That did not leave legal unturned. Prior to that, legal would tend to get a blank check or they would get the, the, the excuse that the shrug of the shoulders and, hey, anything could happen. How could I possibly give you a budget for this year for legal? Was no longer good enough for boards of directors of, of corporations. So what happened at that point was those companies, their legal departments started applying a lot of pressure to their law firm saying, we can't just give you a blank check. We can't just shrug our shoulders and say anything can happen. You got to give me some idea of what you think this matter is going to cost or what this particular workflow is going to cost this year. But that was a pretty market level movement to minimize legal costs. And I don't even disagree with that. I, I agree I agree with the premise of it that you don't wanna just blindly pay bills without any sort of scrutiny or oversight, particularly when you're talking about big bills, right? These are not small sums of money we're talking about. And I think about, I've had a number of conversations with my corporate legal operations counterparts at large public companies, right? The kind of things that they are responsible for in terms of cost containment or budgetary certainty that's got Wall Street implications, which has much broader impact than I think a lot of times was maybe uh, acknowledged uh, by law firms or you know, lawyers doing the work of it. So there is obviously a huge incentive for them to have much more tight controls over these expenses. What's happened though, during that period of time, I would say demand for legal services wasn't through the roof. And there were still a lot more lawyers coming out of law school. And there were also a lot more lawyers that weren't going in to do other things, right? Most of them were still a huge portion of talent pool was still being recruited by large law firms to do work for large companies. So you had this situation where you had demand that wasn't crazy high and supply of people to do the work or alternatives. This was before you had a lot of consolidation of law firms as well. You had a lot of alternatives, which the more competition there is, the more that drives prices down, that were very much more favorable to to getting better deals on your legal services from this tier of suppliers. You also didn't have as many mature competitors or entrants that we have now. So there was far less technology that could do portions of legal work, like substantive legal work than we have now. And a lot of the ALSPs and LDOs were either very limited in scope or they were very somewhat nascent and didn't have too much um, market share or hold on the market to get to take away to erode the pieces of work that law firms. So those conditions are far different. That put a lot more pressure on law firms to try and you know reduce prices as much as possible because they were really chasing the work. There was you know huge scrutiny on cost, and there wasn't enough work to go around. So you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. What we find now, which is an interesting, one of the many interesting sort of um, externalities from the pandemic, 
is that not only did the legal environment get, get significantly more complex from a regulation standpoint, compliance and all those things, but there's a higher demand for more sophisticated, complex legal advice now because there's more complexity in the market. Everything from employment to the really hugely growing, or it was growing, now it's subsiding a little bit, but market in M&A, like all those types of, of, of categories of work, there's massive demand. So you had the the mirror image of what you had before. Demand wasn't that crazy. Now demand has gone the other way, where there's a lot of a lot more complex demand for complex legal services. And as a result of the pandemic, you had a lot of people going, like, first of all, working like crazy because there was so much demand. And then a lot of them leaving the workforce in the categories of legal service providers that are needed to do the work for these large clients. So anyways, the, that's to explain the premise of there's been a market shift from buyer power to now there's supplier power because clients are still coming to law firms and saying, look, we have pretty hefty needs in these areas. One of the things I think that has always been ignored in these discussions with clients or in clients' calculus and how they determine what they're getting for the bills they're paying, there's never a very... I'd say accurate way of measuring the value that was captured from the services, what the outcome was. It's always, what was that bill? That bill is really high. That's great, but maybe you bought a company that had in the M&A scenario that had subsidiaries or locations in highly regulated or highly risky territories of these things. There's a ton more work to be done. It's not an apples to apples kind of company. So you don't really look at, okay, what did I get? for that, for the price that I paid. You're just saying the bills are higher now. But the last point I'll make, and then I'll stop on this sort of philosophizing meandering here. The last point I make though, is that in the market, the legal market like any other is just dictated by economics, right? These are the same economic principles that apply in every single market. And indeed in the same markets that our corporate companies operate in for their corporates. If there's high demand and low supply, you're a fool if you cut your rates too much or if you cut your price because you're leaving money on the table. The reason you don't want to do that, one, is it's not a good way to run a business, but it's also the exercise and the science and the strategy that goes into setting prices, but depending on the market, is all in pursuit of everybody's goal that works at any for-profit enterprise, which is maximizing shareholder value. So if you work at a large corporate and you sell a product, and you decide our competitors are we're able to sell that product. We have more people that want to buy it than that we have to sell. Let's cut our prices. That's not going to maximize shareholder value. You're going to get ousted. That doesn't work. It's not a market sustainable position to take or approach to take. It's the same thing with legal services. If law firms are going, well, look, people are working 2,400 hours a year. That's not healthy. 2,500 hours a year. Let's make them super cheap and not get as much as we can out of that so we can reward them for all their hard work, but also the, the partners that, have, that are investors in the business, that, those are the shareholders, just like it is in a public company. Anyway, it's, it's just touching on a couple of what I see as the main levers yeah. of what has happened and where we are now, and I'll stop. That's helpful because it's important to understand, and one of the key things to touch on there is the legal market is still governed by the same economical forces, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. there is that balance of supply demand and a market will correct itself to adjust accordingly. You, you can't have extreme polarization in any direction yeah. over time, either because of your customers pushing back on you or you as the provider, seeing that you need to increase or adjust your rates, whichever way it actually goes, you will need to, you will need to make, that, make that adjustment. In terms of the supply, one of the things you touched on is over the last, let's say five years, there has been 
weirdly an increase in supply in who can provide the services. You talked on the LSBs, the LDOs, and recently there's been a decrease in the practitioners because they want to not work 2,600 sure. hours a year or build 2,600 hours a year. There's of course also been an increase in technology that can help with some of these things, not just from getting the work done. That's a conversation for another day. And there's bazillions of episodes on French legal people can listen to about that, but also in how do you actually price the work? Because I think if you speak to a lot of individuals about pricing, a lot of professionals about pricing, a lot of the times it feels like it goes into a black box, right? You put in your, your requirements into a black box, outcomes a number uh, without really too much understanding on, okay, why is my bill X million or X hundred thousand, whatever it might be. You touched on the value that's being provided and all the factors that go into it. Maybe you are doing M&A and you're acquiring a business in a risky territory. H how can firms in this case um, focus on at least establishing the value that they're providing from a pricing perspective. How do you actually demonstrate that we're going to charge you X and it's worth more than X to you as an outcome or whatever that might be? Yeah, so there's price discrimination is a short answer to that. Not everything is worth the same amount. And by nature, this is not any sort of judgment or trying to take a position on what the actual you know value is or the value of the practitioners that do this kind of work. But by nature, there's a spectrum of complexity. And the stuff that's really complex on the highly complex side tends to be more scarce, uh, more scarce supply of people who can do it. And by nature, on the opposite side, on the more commoditized side, the more routine side, it's not as complex and there's, there are more options to avail yourself of to do that. So being knowledgeable and, and aware of, I would say every type of work, like category of work, but even within a given matter, so this is, this will kind of dovetail into the LSG point. Within a given matter, understand what is the minimum necessary investment to make in order to get it done and to get that portion of the work done at a uh, satisfactory level of, of quality, right? So you can't charge the same for you know certain services that have a more that that sell on the more um, commoditized and the more sort of routine level of spectrum as you can on the high end. So being aware of that and not trying to one size fits all your pricing approach, your pricing strategy. So I drill down a little bit more and we say, okay, you don't matter level or a portfolio level. If you unbundle the work, you can either, you've seen a number of different strategies as it relates to alternative um, service delivery models, right? Some firms have created captive ALSPs, which there's, there's a lot of good feedback from clients. Like we like that because it gives us uh, more sort of value for dollar because we're minimizing the service delivery cost for the portion where we can we get the continuity of the same person, you know, the same entity managing it all and providing it all. But then you can also partner. There's a lot of great third parties now that, that do a lot of great work in that area too. So being mindful and, and aware of the market and say, okay, look, if we do have price sensitivity here and there is, the client is willing to uh, absorb the risk or of saying, I want to use a third party, and but I want to use my law firm that engages with a third party to manage those resources. My law firm doesn't have their own captive resources. As a firm pricing person, I need to know how that model works. And I have to be able to educate the partners on how that works and make sure that if that is a sensitivity that the client has, that we know we can present that to them. Either it's me doing it or it's the partner. And a lot of times that ends up being the bottleneck or the, the barrier is that the partner isn't comfortable with it. So they don't tell the client about it. And if you know the different relationships at different stakeholders within that and different levels of influence within those stakeholders. So 
there's some clients I work with a lot and others that it's still mostly the part under the background of the partner does a lot of the interfacing. So it, it just depends on who's got the, the ear or the platform with the right. client to, to, to have those conversations. How do those conversations, if you are going into that detail and you're explaining that where you are working directly with the clients, are they quite receptive to it? Because I imagine it's the same story on their side. Sometimes you're able to speak directly to the person who's managing the spend and the budget. And sometimes you're speaking through a conduit who has to then translate right. what you're saying to right. through to whoever is making that decision ultimately. How, how do they react to it? As you're trying to figure out, look, this is these are some of the ways you can manage your spend, whether it's so you can unbundle or you can bundle, you can work through third parties, you can work through us and we can have that sort of ALSP type model. Are they quite open to this? Do clients want that or is ultimately... Does the question become, look, all I want to do is reduce this number. Just mm -hmm. tell me how much you can reduce the number by. Um, yeah. Or are they actually interested in figuring out, help me figure out how do I demonstrate the value that we're getting for this number so we can continue doing that and maybe increase the number over time because we think this is a valuable service. So that also is on a spectrum of uh, sophistication, I would say. Different, the, the clients that have made meaningful and deliberate investments in a knowledgeable legal operations function that understands the market, understands the job to be done, and has established clear goals. Those are the ones where you've got, my job is basically to talk to them about how they can achieve their goals. My particular role is to make sure that the firm is as profitable as possible, but also that we're making our clients as happy as possible in terms of service delivery models and the price fits and that they're getting the outcomes. So that's the intersection of where my role is. Part of that conversation is with the more, when you have that conversation with the more sophisticated legal operations groups, they get it. You can have a very productive conversation with them and say, here's what I think our options are. Would this work for you? Here's what I think the financial impact could be, or would you give you this level of clarity and, and transparency into the analytics and the metrics of things? We can see things like all those things have value, but that's a higher level conversation. Then if you've got what are either younger or smaller or less sophisticated legal operations or procurement teams that you're dealing with, and they're not really given a whole lot of direction on how you solve this puzzle. They're just told, I'm generalizing a little bit, but they're told, look, you're, we have to cut our budget this year by 20% in CFO. And so you'll do that and apply the hatchet, not the scalpel. And they say, okay, everything we need 25% more discounts off over 20% more discounts. So right. um, it varies on the receptiveness and the, the ability to actually engage in some of those uh, in I'd say architecting and then uh, implementing some of those solutions, depending on the sophistication of the client, of the person on the buy side. There's only so many levers in this business in terms of the way I do. It's all right. about start service delivery models. Yeah. And there's actually in the underlying economics. This isn't astrophysics. It's not, there's not huge, massively complex data jobs to be done in most cases. There's some benefits to that in different scenarios, but yeah. there's a couple of levers on who's going to do the work and how much they have to do and what's the cheapest way to do it and what's the outcome going to be and how does that how do those things sort of correlate, right? The price to the, the product. So having those conversations with people that, that understand that better. And also another thing I would say too, you can have, the, I've worked with a number of legal operations groups where they have the knowledge, they have the understanding, the sophistication, but there's a gap in the level of influence they're allowed to have over the in-house you know, um, attorneys as well. So they don't have a whole lot of enforcement or influence over what actually happens. They can say, hey, we suggest this would have a witness be a great idea. And they'll go, yeah, that's great. And then they'll go back and do it however they're, they're comfortable with because a lot of them came from the same place that 
the law firm lawyers came from. They all came from law firms and they went in house. So we have very similar challenges, I'd say in house and on the law firm side. As it relates to getting the lawyers to understand the economics piece and the process piece and engage with it and really adopt it as opposed to going, yeah, but I'm skeptical of that because I don't understand it. So let's just do it the old way. Yeah, you're absolutely right on that sophistication spectrum. But I can imagine that as at the top of that organization, if you're scrolling through LinkedIn or your newsfeed, then you will likely start reading and you're looking at legal spend, you will likely start seeing articles or people's commentary on the law firms are increasing their rate by X percent or attorneys are raising their rate by Y percent. Things of that nature also, of course, have an impact because someone reads that they're like, this is crazy. Has our firm increased the rate by, or our panel has increased their rate by this amount? We must ask for a discount. Or how do you react to that? Especially right now, I think it's prevalent at least I see it a lot. I know you wrote uh, a long post on LinkedIn about it as well, which had a lot of chatter through that. But I also think about all of these things. That is the case, but it's, and I'm more of a tech person than anything else, but over time, these things do average out and the average isn't very high, right? Because over X period, a lot of, there's been a lot of investment but it's not like firms have been there saying, we're increasing your rate 10, 20% every single year because we're growing and we're investing in our attorneys or the service that we provide. But it's only now, it feels like it's a massive increase and it might be, but that's for one year versus 10. So the articles that come out, my position on those is the publications that are publishing those articles and posting them Obviously, they want eyes on them, so they have to make it as sensationalistic and good versus evil as possible, so yep. people click on it and they read it. And again, taking that sort of a very market economics-driven phenomenon and trying to apply emotion to it and antagonize, I think is very unproductive for the industry in general. It's a pretty blatant strategy, but I get it. That's what gets advertising dollars on the website or whatever. You got to make people look at it, so I understand why they're doing it. If you break it down to the purely objective forces at play, this is just economics. So if you're talking about why have, why are rates going up so much? I talked a little bit about the supply and demand offset. Part of what we have to do in order to have a supply because demand is so high and because the, the market for people willing to do this work that are able to do this work has gotten much smaller is you have to pay more for the talent to do it. If you have a, a, a client whose position is, I still need these services. I need you to do them. Why would I have to pay more for it? It's the same as saying I bought a gallon of gas six months ago and it was $3 and now it's five. Why would I pay five? It's because that's what the market is. That's maybe a flawed argument because Ultimate is a, a cartel and whatever. So there's other elements that are controlling that there. They limit their supply. But it's one of those things where if we don't pay those salaries to the people, we won't have a business to operate to give you the services that you're demanding. So it's a, a vicious cycle, right? Like. We can't compete in this market if we don't pay what it costs to have the, the other resources on hand. So unfortunately, everything is cyclical, right? I mentioned before, we went through a decade of dismal growth and, and profitability was all stagnant because that was what the market forces dictated. That was how we had to operate. That's different now. It's not the same. We're not in the same world. Markets are fluid. They're dynamic. So it's changed now. It's flipped. And I'm not trying to say companies should like it. And I can completely understand and identify what the challenges that causes from budgetary consideration and, and all those. I understand all the issues related to it. However, this is just what the market is generating right now. 
The, the last thing I want to make on this, and I harp on this all the time because it's really one of my sort of hot button items, is the fallacy or the fantasy that inflation in any industry is should be no more than what the CPI national inflation rate is. Not only is that triple what it normally is right now, so we can take that and put that out to the side. However, if you look at, I wrote an article on this a couple of years ago, and I did it because it was a passion project because I was like, we our costs go up more than the cost in CPI because what CPI measures is massive scale production of yep. commoditized goods on a global scale on a global yep. level, right? That is a far different animal than I need rocket scientists that know how to solve incredibly complex problems with strangely yep. confusing and, and voluminous levels of regulation and legislation that have to govern them. It's not in the same market. And if you look at like the Bureau of Labor, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, and you go through, you can see what the expense growth percentages are year over year in a number of different industries. When I wrote the article, the expense growth in, I think it was mining, was like 12%. So year over year is 12%. Right. And it's a good analogy to use because you can easily conceptualize this. If you need to get certain minerals, when you first start trying to find those minerals, they're laying on the ground, right? You pick them up, yeah. you go pick them up yeah. off the ground, whatever. The more, once those are gone, the ones that are easy to get to now, what? You need a shovel, right? You got to get a shovel to go get those. Shovels aren't free. You got to go buy. You need more people to shovel to get to the next level. Take that forward a couple more years or whatever. Once you've got what the shovels can reach, well, now you need uh, bulldozers and backhoes, right? And now you need sophisticated drilling equipment and archaeologists are far more expensive than the shovel was for the second iteration or than it was to go strap on your shoes and pick the stuff up off the ground. That's just how it works. And it's a sort of similar analogy to sophisticated services in any market. Yeah. So and, it's uh, not I, the same I, as milk and a gallon of gas and whatever yeah. those commoditized services. And I think that that's exactly right. And uh, you can even go one step further. And that's where we are with materials that maybe even if you have the, the infrastructure and the knowledge of being able to drill deep into the core and get those minerals, let's say lithium for batteries, and there's a yeah. shortage of supply. And now you have to go and invent a new way of leveraging something like cobalt to create different types of batteries. Guess what? Inventing a brand new process to solve the same problem costs way more money up front. Over time, mm -hmm. it will become cheaper and cheaper until you run out of the supply. And then you got to do the whole thing again and again. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's, a, that's always a fallacy. I'm like, wait, let's stop right now. No, 2% now. It's not, but I wish. It would be great. Maybe right. a totally different conversation if that was the reality of the economic profile. Or well, what's always economic. interesting though is, you know, as much as in-house teams are going through this, law firms are going through this as well because they have their vendors because everyone does have to get services from someone else. So if you mm -hmm. go and buy technology, the cost of technology goes up because guess what? Hiring software developers gets more expensive. Mm -hmm. Same thing with in-house teams, right? They still have to hire, whether it's LPM individuals or attorneys or whatever. The cost is just higher because... Mm -hmm. There are fewer people in the market that want to do that thing right now. That mm -hmm. may change and that will probably course correct in some way, form or fashion, whether there's more people or we figure out a different way or you find an adjustment in some other manner. But for the moment, everyone has to deal with that and therefore prices go up for everyone. Yeah. And it's not a sinister campaign. No. That's what all the sort of sensationalized environment. Like right. I, I hear one of the posts, the, the articles I read recently and I posted something about it was, and I got a lot of chatter comments 
Somebody said, oh, I see PPEP going up. I'm like, yeah, how many years was it flat or did it go down because there was price pressure? And this is the other side of the pendulum. So what it comes down to is market equilibrium will fluctuate. Now we're on the other side. It's not going to stay this hot. So there's this concern. The other thing I think is interesting about it is when you hear some of the observations or criticism in the market or in the public eye and you know, social media about, oh, PPP, all this, whatever. It's interesting because you can find a person and go, that person is making more money because the person is the good. If you're buying Rice Krispies and they're 350 a box now instead of 275, you don't get to go, you don't know who General Mills is. You can't go find that person and shake your fist at him and go, Dan General Mills, you should be making all this money off buying Rice Krispies. It just, you either buy it or you don't. And what I want, what I think, one of the other things too, it's, this is the market equilibrium resetting itself, right? I'm not telling any client that they need to pay an exorbitant amount more than they deem necessary for services, but you have to then take the responsibility on yourself to avail yourself of alternatives. So instead of saying, I this firm that I've always been using for everything, I need to keep using them. I want to keep using them, but I don't want to pay them out. So they want to charge now. So I'm not going to, I shouldn't have to. That's not necessarily true. That person, that firm is a business too. What you need to do is start availing yourself of, okay, where can I get efficiencies out of technology, right? Which is a hugely growing market. To me, that's going to be the new paradigm is it's going to be a much more dynamic service delivery model where you've got not necessarily lawyers or associates like typical partner track people doing every piece of work manually all the time and sitting down with a pen and laying their eyes on stuff or even going through in Word and doing a word search. There's great technology for that now and it's getting better and better. There's also people that run that that are in third parties or whatever who are some of our data scientists, some of them are paralegals, whatever. You need to change the way you're buying the services and not just say, I want the same thing I've been getting for the same price forever when the rest of the dynamics don't lend itself to that. You just can't do it. So it's it's not the firm, no provider of a good or service is obligated to provide that service at one particular customer, you know, would prefer to pay for it. Right. It's the customer's decision if they want to pay for that. And if not, to look for alternative approaches to getting the outcomes of the service they need within the budget. And how the service is packaged has changed over time as well. And you touched on technology because from a law firm perspective, that's the other thing. It's about, look, we want to continue providing the service. You want the service. You don't want to pay as much. So we're going to leverage technology to do parts of it. You Mm -hmm. don't get to come in and then ask, why isn't partner X billing and working on this as closely? Why, you know, why is a first year associate doing this work. We have a budget to maintain. If you want to stay within budget, that's how it works. And it's, it it is about what are you demanding? Is that reasonable with what you're expecting? If the quality of the work is the same and the firm can adjust the leverage they're putting on how the work is getting done, Mm -hmm. there shouldn't really be an issue, right? You you have to look at that as a complete package. You can't say, I want to pay exactly what I was paying yesterday. I want you to give me the best of everyone that you have. And if that means that you have to take a loss, then so be it, because that's how much we're willing to pay. You have, everyone has to make it. You can say that. You can, you can say, say that. that. <laughs> right. yeah, it doesn't right. know it's going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. But the other thing too, this, this is one of the things I've been, that I factor into that sort of thought of what the paradigm shift looks like or what the new sort of service delivery, the, the more, the next version of the service delivery model looks like with that sort of multifaceted approach. Given that we've got a shortage of supply of people with the you know requisite skills to do a lot of this work, and that's why we have to charge more and all that, right. they also have been working a ridiculous amount of hours, and that's why we have to pay more for that. But on top of that, there's obviously the mental health and quality of life concerns that have allowed a lot of people to leave the workforce. 
I've been trying to make the case and we work with our innovation group a lot too, with, you know, several different teams internally to say, if you don't want people burning out, you want them to have some better level of, of work-life balance and job satisfaction, don't force them to brute force their way through everything all the time. If you can get 30% more productivity out of the same people and let them sign off at seven or eight o'clock or six o'clock at night and not have to get on the rest because they did, so they used some type of tool that scaled their productivity and was able to deliver efficiencies, do that. And then you still get the same outcome. You just don't have to have as many, as much input to get the same outcome. It's just like anything else. And, and that's the challenge, right? Because when people think about productivity, that's important. But most people take the view not of how can I make this person's life easier? It's, it's more about, okay, if we make them 50% faster, they can do twice as much. That only works if that person is working a reasonable time. Um, but when someone's yeah. working 12 hours, the goal shouldn't be, how do we get them to do more in 12 hours? It should be, how do we yeah. get them to do the same in eight hours so same they can actually exactly. have four hours back in their life and they can relax yeah. a little bit. Especially as you think about retention as any business, and it's not a law firm thing, it's just generally retention is an issue. Mm-hmm. That, that becomes a competitive advantage for a lot of businesses and especially law firms right now because hiring individuals is super expensive. Training them is even more expensive. And if they leave within three to five years, then you're not getting a return on how much money you're investing in actually trying yeah. to attract this top talent. And you've got to repeat the cycle again. I think there was a study that it cost something like three to $500,000 in- I feel like I saw that somewhere too. Getting, in getting- <laughs> a associate to be ready. And I think it takes three years or five years. If you can spend a third of that money on technology that allows you to keep them for the entire five-year period, yeah. there's a return and there's a good argument to be made there. Yeah. And also who you're selling to and what their level of sophistication of buying right. is. That kind of thing resonates with those people and that gets you more yes. work. So I've been trying to, that's one of the things I try to underscore too, with when well, we got scenarios where we can do this. If you can do some level of commodity work and not devote more valuable resources to it than you need to devote to that, but it's a it's an additional element of value and stickiness and continuity and, and consistency for the client, that helps lead to, wow, they're doing that for us. Yep. Why don't you, that's a, a stronger relationship and builds a better platform to get other more sophisticated, complex work added to it. So you become a better business partner. So all these things are all very interrelated and they can all serve the same purpose. You just got to get a little bit outside the box yeah. The, the, the traditional locks anyway, in terms of how you conceptualize what business you're in and what the client actually wants. You know? Yeah, so. absolutely. Also, I think I've taken enough of your time. This is a really great, great introduction into some of the history and the background on why we're here and how you can actually have a productive conversation around pricing and providing value and where certain concessions or adjustments need to be made so it becomes reasonable. And of course, as an underlying theme of the discussion, the market will correct itself, right? Whether, and both on the supplier and the provider uh, on, on the demand side as well. Keith, thank you so much. If people want to find out a bit more about you, I'll post link to your LinkedIn profile, anywhere else that you direct them to. Yeah, you can check out. So I'm a, what are the co-founders and board members of Legal Value Network, which is a, basically a business a lot. Um, industry community. Over a thousand members now. Uh, we've got a big conference coming up in September. We just had our, today's our last in the series of uh, regional meetings we had called the Road Trip. But point being, if you go to legalvalue.network.com, there's a lot of content in there, particularly if you're a member in the thought leadership area that covers a lot of these topics. And then any, anybody wanting to brush up or get a broader view on these things, I'd invite you to do that. A little bit biased, but it's also somewhat objective because there's a lot of great content there. I think it's, it can be helpful to those that are, that are curious.
And I know there's a fantastic podcast that supplements that too, which I will link in the show. Oh yeah, Off the Clock, a podcast too that's available on all platforms. You can go, you don't have to be a member of that. It's Off the Clock. And I've listened to the podcast. That's yeah, absolutely my recommendation there. And I'll list all of those things in the show notes as well. Thank you again, Keith, for coming on the show. Excellent. Thank you. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I did recording it. You might also want to listen to my conversation with Janet Stanton on the benefits of a strategic client management program, Rasmit Charya on leveraging technology to maximize the value of legal services, or Dr. Heidi Gardner on building innovative legal teams through smart collaboration. Before you go, if you like the show, then I know you'll love the Fringe Legal Newsletter. It's full of interviews, articles, and reports to help legal innovators like yourself learn how to put ideas into practice and find success. You can sign up for free at fringelegal.com. The show was produced for Fringe Legal by Abhijat Saraswat. A special thanks to our guest. And if you enjoyed the conversation, you can help me out by giving this podcast a five-star review and click that follow or subscribe button on your favorite podcast player of choice. Until next time, stay well.